Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. We're starting a new teaching series today. And I didn't come up with the title for this series. The people who organized the earlier putting together the Bible did. We're calling this series The Sermon on the Mount. Have you at least heard of this? This is the thing. Okay, someone said, of course, I'm glad. That made me feel really good, right? That you've at least heard of it. I have uh, many friends who don't know Jesus yet. And most of them have heard of at least the Sermon on the Mount even if they've not hold it. Happy birthday, man. Is it your birthday today? Yes, happy birthday, Sunday. He's like, what? Like, we were just waiting for you to wish happy birthday to you. A happy birthday, 21 years old today. We're so, <laughs> happy birthday. Uh, so glad you got to spend this morning with us. Happy birthday, Sunday. Uh, but yeah, most of my friends have at least, they know this title, or they kind of know that it's in the Bible. You probably have most of it committed to memory if you've been in church for any length of time and you're like, Pastor, I don't think that's right. We're going to test that in a little bit. I think you do. Well, I was talking with with Keith, uh, Keith's dad, Keith, uh, after the first service. And he's like, uh, he's like, man, I was just as we were going through that this morning, I was aware of how much of the sermon as we were studying through it that I already knew, but I didn't know that I knew it all because there's a lot of really familiar teaching in here. How many of you have ever heard of the Beatitudes? You heard of those? What are they? They start with blessed are the, or blessed is the one. Okay, you've heard of those? That's in there. Um, how about the Lord's Prayer? That's in there, right? Um, there's some other things in there too. How about the Golden Rule? You know what that one is? Do unto as you would have them do unto you. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't it interesting that only one of the four gospel writers made the choice to document it in its entirety, and that's Matthew. There's some, and you can get the, if you want all the the backstory and some more of the research and notes on this, you can scan that QR code, you can download the PDF, and it's just an introduction that I pulled together in my study time this week, just to get an overview of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, take a kind of a 40,000 foot look at it. And I I write more in there about why only Matthew? What about the little snippets of what seems to be parallel teaching that you find in Luke and in Mark? What do we do with those? Was this one continuous sermon or did Matthew summarize several sermons? How do we know that it's authentic? How can we trust that it really happened? I answered a lot of those questions um, in that document. But Matthew is the only one of the four gospel writers who goes, who, who records this, in my belief after the research, he's the only one who's recording this particular moment. 111 verses. Matthew chapter 5, all of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. And as Matthew records this, this happens very early in Jesus' public ministry. He's probably about 30 years old at this point. And there's a gap in the Gospels of what went on in Jesus' life between the ages of 12 and the age of 30. There's 18 years that we don't know a whole lot about other than I think it's Luke 2, 42 through 44. That's what we know about what happened during that season of his life. But um, do you remember the last scene we have? What, where did we see Jesus? What story do we know about 12-year-old Jesus? Do you remember? Went to the temple and he was there teaching the teachers and his parents kind of and the whole group that had gone to Jerusalem to worship for the holidays were headed back home and they're traveling in a big group and they notice somewhere along the way they're counting they're like oh we lost one and they got to go back and they find Jesus in the temple and he's why were you worried about me don't you know I should be about my father's business and his dad's there like I'm you know what I mean like it's That's the last scene we have before we see him again at age 30. And he shows up at a baptism service, right? And who's leading the baptism service? I'm giving you a big hint. John the Baptist. So named because he baptized people, right? Jesus shows up. John baptizes him. 
voice from heaven, the dove comes down. Is that familiar to you? This is Jesus kind of beginning his public ministry. And he goes right from that scene. The next scene we get is the Holy Spirit leads him not into the city, not into the synagogue and not to the cross. Where does the Holy Spirit lead him? Depending on which translation, the desert or the wilderness. To, and what was his kind of his Bible college experience? 40 days of fasting and being tempted. Why? Listen, if you're going to be tempted, I don't advise you to fast while you're being tempted. Okay? You're going to need all the sugar and caffeine you can get, right? And yet, passes the test with flying colors. And he comes out of the wilderness, and now he begins his public ministry. So where does he go? Kind of the same place that Paul went when he started. He goes into the synagogues. And what ethnic group of people would be gathered in the synagogues? And they went to the synagogue to worship and get teaching. So Jesus started teaching in the synagogues, just like the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And his teaching, let me just be honest with you, best teaching ever. But it wasn't necessarily the teaching at first that got kind of the social media machine running before there was social media. It was not just, it was the fact that this man could perform incredible, unthinkable, not seen in their lifetime kinds of miracles. In fact, in chapter 4 of his gospel, Matthew says, they brought to him every kind of sick person and every kind of disease, and he healed all of them. Legitimately, empirically, in front of their eyes. And then the next couple sentences, and then large crowds gathered. Well, of course they did. But you see, to them, they were coming out primarily, not because, oh, a new teacher is in town, but man, this guy is doing these incredible miracles. And so lots of people were coming out for that. But to Jesus, the healing and the miracles weren't the main event. They were simply an opportunity for him to point an arrow towards something was at the front of his mind. And it was to talk to them about a different kingdom and a different king. And early on in his ministry, the crowds grew really, really quickly. They were coming to him for healing, for deliverance, for uh, demons to be driven out of people with all kinds of stuff. And he was healing, healing, and teaching. He was teaching and healing and healing and teaching. And it's in this part of Jesus' ministry that Matthew records the sermon on, do you remember where it happened? On the very good, the mount. Which mount? Which mountain? Um, today, we have given a name, well, we haven't, but the people of Israel have given a name to the mountain where they believe this took place. Do you know what creative name they've given to it? The mountain of the Beatitudes. So named because they believe traditionally that this mountainside in southern Galilee is where Jesus delivered that address. They're very careful about saying, if you travel to Israel, you'll notice they're very careful about saying, on this specific spot, Jesus did this. Because the moment they say that's right where it happened, there's a war from three different groups of people to build a, a, a monument there, to claim it is there. So, you know, traditionally, they believed it happened on the mountainside in southern Galilee, which makes sense. Matthew tells us this is the region where Jesus was when it happened. But Matthew goes into great detail. Because you see, Matthew had a soft spot in his heart for Jews in the first century who had converted to Christianity. That's who he wrote this gospel to. He wrote his gospel to Jews. He had them in his mind. And there was a problem at the time that Matthew wrote his gospel where we're, we're now, he's writing this and compiling this in a period of time after Jesus had been crucified and buried and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And after the day of Pentecost, when a huge uh, conversion took place in Jerusalem. At the time Matthew wrote his gospel, there's probably 20,000 Jews who had converted to Christianity living in the city of Jerusalem. Huge group of people. The words in the New Testament say they were turning the city upside down with the gospel. But at the same time, those first Christians in this city we're going through some really, really difficult challenges. Persecution. And it wasn't coming from outsiders. It was coming from ethnic insiders. It was Jew against Jew. 
And you have these kind of old school Jews who looked at these new Jews who were converting to Christianity and putting their faith in Christ and not putting their faith in the law to make them righteous. These old school Jews were saying, you're traitors. You're not a true Jew. You're a breaker of the law and deserving of eternal punishment. And that was an unstomachable claim. It was fracturing and splintering families, parents and children, brothers and sisters. And it's into that crisis and into that splintering that Matthew addresses his gospel. And so as he's presenting the historical things that Jesus did, he's giving special attention to how Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament, not destroying the Old Testament. He's trying to show the the new Christians the things they're accusing you of are not true. You are not a lawbreaker. You've not abandoned God. You've not abandoned your faith. You've found faith through faith in Jesus. He chooses 65 Old Testament scriptures to weave into his gospel. It's more than any other gospel writer because he wants to carefully show that Jesus did not come to destroy the law, to invalidate the law, to down the law, to tear up the law. He came to fulfill it. And it's interesting that Matthew chooses this particular sermon. Matthew gives us six of Jesus' sermons. This one's a little different. It's interesting that he chooses to include this one because it's Jesus' 111 verse, probably the closest thing he's ever given to a manifesto, describing what real community looks like, what real relationships look like under God's rule. He shows exactly, Jesus describes very specifically what his followers should be and what they should do. He gives a very specific code of conduct, of ethics, of attitudes, of thoughts, the way we should relate to God, the way we should relate to ourselves and think of ourselves, and the way we should think of other people. It's very, very clear. Think of it this way. I have friends, like I said earlier, I have lots of friends who don't know Jesus And I try and do everything that I can as God gives me strength to live wisely and do life together with them in such a way that I'm always looking for conversations where they can maybe move in a spiritual direction so I can learn a little bit more about their story and then hopefully share how my story and Jesus' story intersect and relate to their story. And, And in so many ways, we usually get down to this. Phil, tell me, of all the different denominations and all the different churches and all the different mega pastors, all the different books, all the thousands of years of history, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What are Christians supposed to be like? What's it it like being in Christianity? And Jesus, in these 111 verses, answers those questions simply and clearly. Here's what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven. This is how you get in. This is how you stay outside. When you get into God's kingdom, here's what the boundaries are. Here's what our culture is like. Here's what our language is. Here's the way we live life together in this kingdom. This is what my followers do. This is what Christians will do. This is how Christians will be. And you're thinking, man, that's so practical. Why did we complicate this so much? Well, here's an answer I might suggest from uh, an author that I turn to a lot by the name of John Stott. In writing about the Sermon on the Mount, I want to share this quote. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. Wouldn't that be a fun title for today's sermon? The least obeyed sermon in the history of the world. And you get Jesus' sermon 111 verses of it. And yet, as you'll discover in just a few minutes, I bet you probably know a whole lot more of it by memory and in your heart than you even think that you do. And what Stodd is saying is that there's a disconnect between how we hear this and remember this and then how we live it out in our lives. Some other statements I collected that summarize the Sermon on the Mount. David Platt said this in his book, Christ-Centered Exposition. Exalting Jesus in Matthew, he says this, the Sermon on the Mount is the most majestic sermon 
from the greatest preacher who ever lived. I don't know how you top it more than that. Um, The main idea, Platt says, is that kingdom citizens, citizens of God's kingdom, must demonstrate a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And this righteousness only comes about as we're changed by God's grace and power in the gospel of Jesus. Now that's some word salad right there. Here's what he's saying. As you listen through Jesus' sermon, and if you hear it the way the original hearers did, here's what you'll hear. Jesus is going to say, the kingdom of heaven is open and it's accessible. Come on in. Here's the way in. The way in is you have to be perfectly right with God. And everyone who's perfectly right with God can have access. Now, let me tell you what being perfectly right with God looks like. And he gives them a whole bunch of those things. And then Jesus says, if you want to come in, you need to be more righteous than the most righteous people walking the face of the earth today. And then you can come in anything less than that, and you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, that is really depressing. I can enter into the most amazing kingdom culture ever where people act like you said that they act or the king treats us that kind of a way. Benefits package that comes with it. Complete contentedness, complete peace, loving environment. Everybody looking out for everybody. Just content and filled with happiness and joy. And the only way I can get in is if I'm perfectly righteous. And the way I know I'm perfectly righteous is that my righteousness exceeds that of the most righteous person I ever know. You're basically telling me it's impossible for me to get in. Why even tell me about it in the first place? Why not let me just be ignorant? In fact, about two years later, one of his disciples finally cracks under the weight of all of these teachings. And he tries to corner Jesus and just asks him flat out, Jesus, if this is what it takes to get into your kingdom, he asks this question, how then can anyone be saved? And aren't you glad Jesus answered the question? You know what he says? With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know, there's only one human who's ever walked the face of the earth who passes the Sermon on the Mount criteria, and that's Jesus Christ. This whole sermon is going to compare how God's kingdom is compared to how the world's kingdom is. There's not a paragraph of this sermon that doesn't compare. And yet, if we use it as a scorecard, some days you'd feel pretty good about yourself on some of the categories, and other days you'd feel bad. And if you walked away from this sermon like they did, they would be amazed and sad. How can I ever have that kind of righteousness to enter that kind of kingdom? And the answer that Jesus has been giving through his whole ministry is that there is a way, but the way is not a what or a how, it's a who. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And I am in the process of passing all the tests that you will fail. And the good news is that I'm going to gift you my report card. The only person whose righteousness can surpass the most righteous person on the earth is Jesus. And the way in is through his righteousness, not through yours. Let me just give you a couple themes to look out for as we study this. As we study it together. I want you to look out for this. I want you to think of these themes of like a thread that's been stitched through these 111 verses. I'm going to give you three. Because there's going to be some parts that we'll come across. I'll just say for me personally, maybe not for you. That's a little arrogant of me to say. For me personally, there's some parts in this that when I read them, I get confused. Or I'm uncertain about what they mean. Or I hope Jesus means something other than what it looks like he means. And in those moments, I don't want to just sweep it under the rug, and I don't want to interpret it inaccurately, but I need some help. And what I'll tell you is if I give you three threads that are, that are stitched through this whole sermon, when you hit one of these places, if you'll tug on the right one of these threads, out will pop your answer, or at least an arrow to help you figure out what it was that Jesus was, was really saying and what he really meant when he was teaching this to his disciples and then to the overhearers from the crowd that gathered around as the sermon went on. So let me just give you these three things, and then we'll hear 
uh, and think through the, the Sermon on the Mount together. And again, I want to show you, you probably know more of it than you think that you do. I'll share it from my memory this morning. I've made the effort to commit the whole thing to my memory. But I'll pause at different points and invite you to maybe finish the sentence because I think you probably know more about this than you already do. But there's, you're going to miss out on the power of it if we chop it up. I want you to hear the whole thing at once and then we'll slowly work through it over the next few weeks. But let me just give you three themes, three threads to look for. Here's one idea Jesus is trying to make sure people understand. The kingdom of heaven. Well, how do we define that? I'll give you a very basic definition. This is as far down as I can distill it. It's a new and different way of living. Pastor, how would you define Christianity to someone who doesn't know about it? Well, that you could write it in a book, but I could distill it down to this statement. Christianity is a totally new and different way of living. It's a whole new way of life, and it's different. It's different from the world's way of living. In fact, I'd say it is the counterculture to the world. It's a Christ-centered counterculture. That's what Christianity is. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of feeling. It's a new attitude. It's a new way of relating to God. It's a new way of relating to yourself. It's a new way of relating to others, people you love, and people you have trouble loving, people you like and people you don't, people who do you right and people who do you wrong. It's a totally new and different way of living. That's what Jesus was describing. The kingdom of heaven, it's totally new and totally different, but it begins now. First John chapter 3 says one of Jesus' assignments when he came to earth was to tear down the kingdom that the devil was building on earth and then restore the glory of his father's kingdom. And a kingdom is not just walls and boundaries and government and culture, though it is those things. It's a whole new way of living, a whole new way of life. It begins now and it lasts into eternity. You're either a citizen of the world's kingdom or you're a citizen of the kingdom of Gavin. Gavin, what is that? Kingdom of the city of heaven. You are either or. You're not neither you're not both and. The way I look at it is like, yes, I am in this world. But I have transferred my citizenship to the kingdom of heaven. So I live and I move and I operate and I can enjoy this world. But I don't submit to its rules, its culture. I, through Jesus, am trying to usher in his kingdom through my new culture, that's not something that I will myself to do, but it's something that tumbles out naturally from an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit inside of me. And it shows up in the way I think, the way I behave, and the way I act. So look through here. There's not a paragraph in this whole sermon where Jesus doesn't get them to see the kingdom of heaven is about a different way of living than you're living now. Because you're going to read some of this like I do, and you'll be like, that sounds really good, Jesus. That's hard for me. You know why it's hard? It's different. It's new. It's not the way you came out of the womb wired to think or to feel or to act. That's why when you hear Jesus say some of the things like, listen, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn them to the other cheek and you're thinking, I don't want two black eyes. I'll just settle for one. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. What's he really saying? He's talking about a new and different way of living than what you're currently living. If someone sues you to take your coat, hand them over your shirt as well. Uh-uh, Jesus. Uh-uh. You can't possibly mean what you're saying. You're telling me to lay down like a doormat. No. He is talking about a new and different way of thinking and feeling. He's saying you don't have to lay down and be a victim because someone can't steal from you what you give them. But more on that in four weeks when we get to that passage. I think I've planned to be out of town that weekend, so we'll leave that for Pastor James. Number two, thread to look through. This is some more word salad, but I want it, I want it to make sense because this, man, this thread is the one that helps me more than the, other, than the other two. They all help, but this one is the one that right now is really helping me. Kingdom living, what it's like to be a Christian, living in God's kingdom, it begins with a change in our heart first that radiates out to our behaviors and actions. Now, why is that critical? Because that is the opposite of the way the religious teachers and the Pharisees of that day thought you got righteousness. Here's what they said. 
Moses gave us 10 commands. We've now got 600 and some odd commands. And the way that you are right with God is you earn your righteousness by checking all of these 600 boxes. That's your report card. It's behaviors and actions. And if you do right things, then and only then you will be right before God. So, give this way. Pray this way. Eat this way. Touch these people. Don't touch those people. Separate yourself from this. Get involved with that. Obey all the do's and the don'ts. Because if you behave and act righteously, then you'll be righteous. A lot of us still live that way. That's why when something bad happens, the first thing you think of is, I must have performed poorly. And God's punishing me for my bad behaviors and actions. Or, there's a blessing in my life. I must have really be performing well right now. That's why, that's, Jesus flipped this on its side. He said, it's not about, it, the kingdom of heaven is not followed by this idea of do right and then you'll be right. He says, be right, and then you'll do right. Because here's what the law couldn't do. Their law told them what to do and what not to do. It was all about external things. What the law could not do was go in and fix their heart. The law could not make them stop sinning. The law could not make them righteous. The law could preserve them for God until he could deal with the problem of sin ultimately and forever. The law, all it could do was remind them how broken they were and how much they needed a law. But it could never fix their heart. And so Jesus says, it's not enough for you to just give and pray and say all the right things and prophesy and drive out demons and do miracles. That's just behaviors and actions. But if there's no heart change, then those things are no good. Trees produce fruit. Good trees Good fruit. You're focused on manufacturing fruit that comes from a different tree. You can't do that. Bad trees can't bear good fruit. Pull on that thread when he starts talking about some things. And that'll help you. And then the third principle I want you to just listen for. It's a little bit longer. wish I could summarize it uh, better than this. But this is what I want you to see. One of the things that Jesus is trying to get through is that the Old Testament law of Moses... The writings of the prophets, that was, that was their scriptures, that was their Bible, that was their guide. Jesus says over, they're good and they're useful. Here's the problem. The teachers of that day were misapplying the law and teaching it inaccurately. The Bible is good and it is perfect and it is true. The, the minister and the presenter is not always good and perfect and true. Amen? You can say that. I'm standing here. It doesn't offend me. It's the truth. It's not a problem with the Bible. It's a problem with the people presenting it and misapplying it through their broken understanding of it. Jesus says it's not a problem with the law and the prophets. The problem is your teachers are misapplying it. I'm here to correct it. I'm here to deal with religious teaching that's gone wrong. And you see, they were not mature enough to hear that. They would rather write off the speaker than dealing with their own culpability. And that became a wedge for all of the Jews. So all I really want to do in the time we have this morning is I want us to hear, to hear the Sermon on the Mount. We're not on a mountainside. I'm not Jesus. I don't have his beard and the wrong color. I don't have his wardrobe. But I want to do the very best that I can to create at least a few moments where you can hear the whole thing it just at once. Not just following along, but really listening and thinking about it as best that I can. In different times, I may just invite you to, to finish the sentence or see if you pick up on the theme just to engage with me to show you. You, you know much more of this than you think. It's meant so much to me, and yet I would agree in my own life, it's probably the most familiar part of the Bible to me, as far as three consecutive chapters, most familiar. But as I've been spending time these last few weeks digging into it, I, it is absolutely the least understood, but I've, I want to understand it better because I want to know God better. Don't you? Yeah, I want to understand it better. And so what, what Matthew tells us, the way that he records this, is he says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside. And I love this part. He sat down. 
Then his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be, do you know the next part? Comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I love this promise. For they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you. When people persecute you and insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice, be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they treated all the prophets that came before you. You are the salt of the earth. But, but, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. And trampled underfoot. You are the light. You know this part? You're the light of what? Of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel. Right? <laughs> the song. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before all men so they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest word not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, I say unto you, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly, they will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not commit murder. And anyone who murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you, if anyone is angry at a brother, or a sister. They're subject to judgment. And again. If anyone says to a brother or a sister. Raka. They're answerable to the courts. And anyone who says you fool. Is in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore if you are at the altar. And you're there. Offering your gift. And there you remember. A brother or a sister has something against you? Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, what? Go and be reconciled with them. Then come and offer your gift. Got to come back to me here. Just had a look. See, Jesus, what's the next part? Ah, yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate that. First service, I made it the whole way through, and I knew it was going to, you know, depreciating, you know, the brain is just going, not enough coffee in the second service, right? Settle matters quickly with your adversaries. Do it while you're still together on your way to court. 
or else your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown in prison. And I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid every last penny. You've heard it's been said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who even looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in where? In the heart. So, if your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it out. Throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anyone who wishes to divorce his wife must issue her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You've, been heard, you've heard that it's been said to the people long ago, do not break any of your oaths, but fulfill to the Lord every vow you've made. But I say to you, do not swear any oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear even by your own head, for you do not have the power to change even one hair from black to white. All you need to simply say is yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. You've heard that it's been said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth but I tell you do not resist an evil person if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to them also the other cheek if anyone takes you to court and sues you for your coat hand over your shirt to them as well and if anyone forces you to go with them one mile go with them how long two miles Give to everyone who asks of you. And do not turn anyone uh, away from you who seeks to borrow from you. You've heard that it's been said, love your neighbors and hate. Who? Your enemies. And here we go again. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you can be called children of your heavenly father. Because he causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. He sends his rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those people who love you back, what reward will you get? Don't even the tax collectors do that? If you greet only those people of your own kind, what are you really doing that's any better than the others? Don't even the pagans do that? Therefore, be perfect, just like your Father in heaven is perfect. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others so that you can be seen by them. I tell you the truth, if you do, you'll receive no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets like the hypocrites do. In the synagogue and standing in the streets in order to be seen by everyone, I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving can be done in secret. And then your father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray... Don't pray like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, but standing up in the synagogues and standing in the street corners so they can be honored by everyone. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room. Close the door. 
speak to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what's done in secret will what? He'll reward you. Do not keep babbling on and on like the pagans do because they think they'll be heard by God because of their use of many words. But your heavenly father knows everything you need before you even ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you of your sins. But if you do not forgive others your sin, their sins, the heavenly Father will not forgive you of your sins. When you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites do because they love to disfigure their faces so that others see that they're fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head. Wash your face so it's not obvious to everyone else that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father, who sees what's done in secret, will what? Reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Does that sound familiar? You still with me? You asleep? Wake up. Wake your neighbor up. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal because where your treasure is, there your, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the whole body. So if your eye is healthy, your body will be filled with light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your body will be filled with darkness. And if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Because nobody can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and you'll love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So therefore, don't, Worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. And don't worry about your body. What will you wear? Because isn't your life more than just food? Isn't your body more than just clothes? Consider the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They don't labor. They don't spin. And yet, I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was clothed like one of these flowers. If this is how God clothes the grass in a field that's here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, won't he clothe you much more? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear because pagans chase after all these things. But your heavenly father, he knows you need them. Seek first his righteousness and his kingdom. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge or you too will be judged. If you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
how can you see a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your eye? How can you say to him, uh, brother, let me remove that speck from your eye when all the time you have a, a, a plank hanging out of your eye, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly enough to help your brother remove the speck in his eye. Don't give what is sacred to dogs and don't cast your pearls to what? To the swine, to pigs. Or else they'll trample them underfoot and then turn and tear you to pieces. Doesn't that, just, doesn't that kind of sound like Jesus prophesying what his life would look like? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and you know all of this. And the door will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Yeah. If which one of you, if you have a son who asks you for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks you for fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, when they ask, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to everyone who asks? So then in all things, you know this part, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this sums up the entirety of the law and of the prophets. So enter. Enter. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And there's few that find it. But watch out. Watch out for false prophets. They'll come to you dressed in sheep's clothingly, but inwardly they are ferocious. Do you know that part? Wolves. But you can recognize them by their fruit. Do people gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. And a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that can't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits... You'll recognize them. Not everyone who comes to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons and in your name, perform mighty miracles. And I will tell them plainly, I do not know you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, and though he didn't say this, he would probably say, therefore, in conclusion, he really meant it. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. Does this sound familiar? You know this part too, right? Like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Less and less of you are with me. Come back to me. Built his house on the rock. The storms came. The waters rose. The winds blew and beat on the house. And it did not fall because it was built on a firm foundation. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not obey them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the storms came. And the waters rose. And the winds blew and beat on that house. And it fell with a great crash. And that's where the sermon ends. And I'm like, Jesus, I need another paragraph. Here's what Matthew records. The reaction of those who had just listened to that masterpiece said. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Even the teacher in the kingdom of heaven was the different and he was different and he was the opposite of the teachers that they had. A little detail that's interesting. When Jesus had finished, the crowds were amazed. But when Jesus started, Who is he talking to? He went up on the mountains away from the crowds with his disciples. And by the time the sermon is done, the crowds are there. Kind of like, what is he saying to them up on the mountain? Let us go listen. And it's like, oh, this is hard to hear, but I can't walk away. So now that you've sat with all 111 verses, probably most of, were you pleasantly surprised by how much you knew of that? Maybe you knew more than you thought that you did. If you heard that originally, it would probably be beautiful, appealing, inspiring, and then troubling. It would leave you with some tension like, Jesus, you've hit the nail on the head. Everything you described about that kingdom is exactly, I think, what I've always wanted. I want to be around people who behave that way. I want to have a king different from the king that I have now who thinks of me that way. I want to relate to that kind of a king. All of the benefits that you described, that's what I really want. I want to enter in. I heard you invite me in, but Jesus, there's a problem. This narrow road or gate that you were talking about, um, I don't know where, where it is. Now, you said I can knock on things and they'll open, so is the gate a door? Um, you said... I'm welcome to come in, but then you also said if my righteousness doesn't surpass that of the the Pharisees and my religious teachers, if my righteousness is not superior to theirs, I can't get in. So is this, are we invited in or were you just allowed to look through the window and just wish we could have some of the cupcakes inside? Like what? Jesus, what do I do with what I just heard? I I really want to be in your kingdom, but yet the requirements you've set for me are unattainable by my effort. And all these priests have been telling me is that I can get into your kingdom by my effort. And now you're saying even my best effort on my best day won't get me in. What do I do if only there were some other way? And yet standing before them was the way and the truth and the life. Jesus has not changed the entrance requirements for us today, friends. But he's made a way. He has made a way. And it's not by your church attendance record. It's not by your giving statement. It's not by how much you volunteer. It's not by how much you improve yourself. It's not about quitting smoking, cussing, cheating. It's not about those things. Those things are fruit that springs from a good tree. They're not artificial fruit hung on a bad tree. That's the evidence, not the requirement. We all come into God's kingdom the same way. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Jesus alone. He is the one who lived out perfectly the entire Sermon on the Mount. He's the one who relates to the king the way that we ought to. He's the one that was able to endure injustice and persecution and hatred. Who cast pearls before people who didn't recognize the value that they were receiving. And trampled what he was saying and then turned and tore him to pieces. He is the one whose righteousness surpasses that of the best righteousness of any human being who's ever lived. He is the only one who can enter, and he is the one who is there, and he is the way. And that in no way needs to be troubling. That is good, good, good news. Because Jesus himself understood his mission. He knew what his father's business was. He knew that among his assignments was to come and face the righteousness test and remain perfectly obedient to his dad, facing every test that we would face, yet he would not sin. He knew the situation we were in. He knew it was impossible by the law we had to get us into heaven. 
and there were no other options. The first Adam failed, Israel failed, everybody who would come after them failed. Someone from outside the world had to come into the world to save our messed up world. The best we could do is take dirty, oil-soaked rags and try and clean our dirty shower glass, and that wasn't going to work. Even the effort you use to scrub your heart clean, that effort itself is a dirty sponge. Even your giving to the needy and the prayers and the, the fasting and all the other good things we try to do if we've not been washed in the blood of Jesus come from a heart that's dirty and that dirty heart doesn't make the fruit good. Jesus showed the limitations of the law. But he also got them curious about a better way. And you and I have a better way. We have a better way. The only way we will ever live the lives of the citizens of the kingdom of God to its fullest is in Christ. But if you're in Christ and he is in you, then you are on a journey of Christ-likeness that he will complete and he will fulfill. It starts now. And over time, every day that you have here on the earth, as you walk close to Christ and you allow the Holy Spirit to work on you, he will change your heart, which means the way you think the way you relate to others, your attitudes, your emotions, and those things will instruct your behaviors so that the fruit is good because it comes from a good tree. He's the vine. We are the branches. Such a revolutionary message to them. And yet you and I have the advantage today of hearing this and saying, Yes. Some of you are saying, yes, God, that's what I signed up for. And I compare the way I'm living today to what I'm reading here. And in some ways I'm doing okay. And in other ways, it reminds me there is work to be done. Do not leave here discouraged. Walk close to Jesus and he'll continue to work on you. He'll continue to work on you. I've told you the story before about how this looks. I did not like mowing the grass when I grew up. And it was one of my responsibilities at home. Every Saturday, my dad would come and wake me up and remind me to go mow the yard. That was his instruction. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, go mow the yard. Remind me to go mow the yard. If he came back at 10 o'clock and I was still in the bed sleeping, was I obeying my father? If he looked at 10 o'clock... And I was out mowing the yard, but it was only a third of the way done. Was his assignment accomplished in totality? No. But was I in the process of, obey of obeying him? Yes. Be in the process of Christ-likeness. Be in the process of Christ-likeness. Well, pastor, is prophecy and driving out demons and all that? Is that, is that bad? I'm confused by all of that. What he's saying is that your behaviors don't outweigh your relationship with the Father. It's possible for you to do good things that the Bible teaches and have no personal relationship with the king. I don't want him to say, depart from me. I never knew you. I want to hear, well done, Phil. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. How about you? I hope you'll sit with the Sermon on the Mount this week and next week and the next few weeks. I hope this is not just an exercise in us opening up a textbook and walking through it with the same passion you did for an introduction to sociology course. My apologies to the sociologists in the room. I don't mean to down your... This is not just a gen ed elective that you have to take and get through it and spit it out on a test and forget it forever. This is life for us. This is the how-tos and what should it be like and how should I live in God's kingdom. It's important and central. And I would submit it's probably not even unfamiliar to you. But our world needs to see a different kingdom than what they live in. Do you hear me? They need to see it. They want to see it. And they think they can find it somehow their way. And we know better, but we don't always show better. And if you just go home and you treat this like a to-do list, this will be a burden and it will be miserable for you. But if you treat it like the picture on the box that Jesus is currently assembling, and you just see the collection of parts and you say, I don't look like that final picture, my question is, but is assembly underway? Is Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, putting you together? If you were a thousand Lego pieces spread out on the ground and he's trying to make a castle out of you, that looks like Jesus. 
Oh, I don't look anything like that today. Okay, but is there progress from what it was two years ago? Well, yeah, there's progress. Then thank God for the process. And don't fight the fingers that are trying to put you in the right place. Because he will put you together in such a way that you'll resemble a citizen of that community. And guess what? He's going to put you in community and you are in community now with other people who are under assembly. Don't you want to come into that kingdom? Isn't that where you want to live? Aren't those the cultures? Aren't those the laws and the rules? Isn't that the type of neighborhood you want to live in? I know I do. Maybe I'm the only one. That's all right. I want you to come in there with me. Spend some time with the Sermon on the Mount. Look into it, but let it look into you. Pay attention to things that make sense and resonate, but also pay attention to things you'll read that trouble you, confuse you. Take note of those things. You can start by pulling on those three threads. Does one of these three threads help me understand what I think he's saying here a little more clearly? And make it effort to be with us through this study because we're going to walk through this slow. It's important. It informs, it educates, it inspires, it corrects. You don't have to commit it to memory. Although you probably know more of it than you think that you did. You also don't have a job like I do where I can just take time and memorize scripture on the clock. It's kind of fun. But at the end of the day, you can memorize the whole thing and not know Jesus, right? Let me pray over you this morning. Heavenly Father, we sit in the tension of this sermon today and as we leave from here. Lord, put your finger on that one moment where we forgot that it was a bald 40-year-old talking to us and we heard your voice speak to our heart. Remind us of what you were saying in that moment. In fact, worship team, why don't you come? I would be doing a disservice to this sermon of Jesus's that I tried to somehow just repeat as accurately as I'm capable of doing. I would be doing a disservice if I didn't just say, would you like to enter his kingdom today? You have to leave the kingdom that you're in. And even though geographically you'll be there, your allegiance shifts from the world's kingdom to the king of all kings. Our knee bows to him. And your citizenship will be transferred into God's kingdom. Your name will be written in his book. You'll be given a whole new community. All new neighbors. Brothers and sisters. You'll be restored to the family you were previously estranged from. Put into right relationship with your dad and all your brothers and sisters. You'll be given a full share of the inheritance. You'll know your king and your father, your savior and your brother. You'll know true peace, true contentedness, true forgiveness, true purpose, true identity that is durable when the winds and the storms and the waters beat on you and they will, you will not fall because it was not your works that were holding you up. It was the rock of Jesus that is holding you up. So many of us in this room have taken Jesus up on the invitation to enter. There's only one way in. I don't care how many denominations there are. If any denomination is preaching an ulterior way in besides what the Bible teaches, they're wrong, they're incorrect. There's one way in. God's grace, your faith in Jesus alone. By grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus alone. It just simply means that you are deeply convinced that you need to be saved. That you can't pass the righteousness test. I need to be saved. I need someone else's resume because mine's not good enough. You need to know you need to be saved. You need to be deeply convinced that Jesus can save you. That what he did through his perfect life and through his payment to God in advance for all sins forever through his perfect life, which did not need redeeming that he exchanged for yours. You need to believe that Jesus not only did that, but that God accepted those terms, received that payment and applied it accordingly. So that all you have to do is receive that over your account. And God will instantaneously impart to you a righteousness that you can't create but that Jesus did. And God will look at you through the lens of Jesus. And then you'll start a journey of learning to look at God through the lens of Jesus and looking at yourself through the lens of Jesus and looking at others through the lens of Jesus, looking at money and relationships and goals and priorities in a whole new way of living.
that seems foolish until you taste it. And then you're like, this is the best thing. This is the right thing. My soul has finally found rest. So I just want to know, do you want to enter his kingdom today? Then just put that in your own words and confess that to Jesus. That you know you need to be saved. That you know Jesus can save you. And that you know he will save you if you ask him. Tell him today you're ready to repent. You are ready to switch kingdoms. You're ready to switch kings. You're done being your own king. And you bow your knee to the king of kings. Just say that to him in your words and he will hear you. He will forgive you. He will save you. A simple prayer that you could offer right now if you're a little at a loss for words is, Jesus, I am a sinner and I need to be forgiven. Please forgive me of my sins. I know you can save me and you will save me. So I'm asking you, please save me. Today I choose to stop living life my own way. I will no longer be my own king. You're the king and you're my king. And I'm choosing to submit to your rule in my life. Holy Spirit, I welcome you to come live inside of me. Will you change my heart both now and gradually? So that day by day, moment by moment, through your work inside of me, I can grow into the person that Jesus is. In your name I pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with Him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.